We're going to be opening up Mark chapter 8, which is page 1485 in the church Bibles. If you don't have a Bible in your hands, feel free to go and pick one up from the table at the back. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to gift one to you, so feel free to take it home with you afterwards. It's page 1485 and Mark chapter 8. I want to read to you a longer passage, uh, which is really, um, has four sections to it. Uh, begins with the miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, and then runs into three interactions that Jesus has. And I'm interested in the theme which binds those things together, which we're going to pay attention to. And I would encourage you to concentrate and see if you can discern what you think that might be about. But let me read to you these first 26 verses of this chapter, chapter 8, Mark 8. It says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they'd forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. What is this passage about? What is it that we are going to be thinking about this evening? The answer, and the particular angle that I'm interested in, uh, is the reality that faith, the ability to believe, in the Bible is spoken of and understood as 
a gift of sight. It's the ability to have spiritual sight, to see something that you did not see before. When somebody comes to believe in Jesus, they are seeing something that they never saw before. And having seen that thing, having, as it were, sort of having their eyes opened, they can't then unsee it. There's something about the perception of who Christ is that can burn itself onto your retinas, as it were, in a spiritual sense, and leave a deep impress upon you. And that's how I want to look at this passage, because as it unfolds, you see how it begins with this miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, and we're not going to particularly um, look at the details of that. Earlier in the gospel, we were considering the feeding of the 5,000, a very similar event, except in to say that It is a remarkable instance of the revelation of the power of God through Jesus. And then there are these three encounters. There are the Pharisees asking for this visible sign. We want to see something, they say. Then there's this interaction Jesus has with his his disciples in which he keeps asking them, don't you see? And then it comes to this moment where this next miracle happens when a man's eyes are opened. And as we've been experiencing through the Gospels, these miracle moments are about much more than just the surface-level occurrence of an extraordinary event. They're symbolic, they're metaphorical, and they speak to us in terms of their meaning. So I want us to understand this idea that faith in the Bible is the ability to see, and that having gained that capacity, as it were, something happens to you. Now, before I get into the passage, let me just lay these ideas out in a few different ways so that you can get a deeper, better handle on what it is I'm speaking about. Think about it, first of all, this way. There are, there are moments in life when you see things that can captivate you, impress themselves upon you, and change you permanently. And I think about, as an example of this, 15 years ago, a little more than 15 years ago, I first set eyes on Sian when she was in the same airport that I was in. We were both on the same trip, actually. And uh, I was impressed. I thought she was beautiful. And seeing her face for the first time made an impression upon me. Of course, with hindsight, I know it was a life-changing impression. And I remember well being drawn to her. Uh, There was something of that sight, of seeing something for the first time, which began to change me. And uh, I also remember just a few months later, another similar experience with her. Uh, You know, when I met her, she'd just come off her gap year, traveling on um, one of the Mercy ships around the coast of Africa, and she was, um, she'd she'd kind of let things go to a certain degree. And uh, she, she wasn't particularly paying much attention to how she looked. She just threw whatever clothes on. She was chilled. It was in that gap year mode. I was still impressed. She had this raw beauty, of course, which, which I was interested in. But then, but then what happened a few months later, she was back into the mode of things. And she was heading to work. Uh, this is just before she started her degree. She worked as an administrator in a hospital. And she came to see me during her lunch hour. And there she was. She was dressed up. She brushed her hair. She, uh, she put a bit of lip gloss on, and suddenly I saw her again in a new way. And I remember these two occasions distinctly in my, in my memory, because it set me on a trajectory of 
falling in love with her. And of course, there was much more I was interested in than that. But you get what I'm saying. And it reminded me of the, it reminded me of the, the lyrics to a song, which you'll recognize immediately, where it says, I thought, that, I thought love was only true in fairy tales, meant for someone else, but not for me. Love was out to get me. That's the way it seemed. Disappointment haunted all of my dreams. Then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer, not a trace of doubt in my mind. I'm in love, and I'm a believer. I couldn't leave her if I tried. It was kind of like that, except I, I did try to leave her on more than one occasion. <laughs> I, uh, there were, I was thawing through my study this week and found a couple of, uh, I found various sort of archives of our relationship, letters she'd written me and tokens of love, and a couple of letters I drafted r- to her where I'd attempted to break up but never actually sent the things to her. So showing them to her this week, she'd read them for the first time. She thought they were utterly hilarious. But I... But the point is, despite the doubts, despite the bumpy road, despite the ups and downs, nevertheless, don't shake your head at me, Maria, (laughs) nevertheless, nevertheless, the sight changed my life. It's just one small example of how something can captivate you and then begin to change you. And actually, the Bible says that to... When, when you become a Christian, it is much like that. There's a sense in which you see something you've never seen before. It begins to get a grip on you. Here's another way you can think of it. We also think about sight and put it... We think of, it in term, we think of understanding and sight as going alongside each other. And we say, for example, when you understand something for the first time, you might say the words, ah, I see. Meaning that in some deep part of you, you perceive what you did not perceive before. Or the reverse can also be true. Uh, you say, I just don't see it. I can't understand it. I just don't see it. I remember back in the, in the 1990s, when I was a young whippersnapper, there was, a, there was a craze for these pictures that were called magic eye pictures. Any of you remember those? And what they were was just a splash of dots on a page. It looked like nothing. And if you stared at this thing for long enough, kind of let your eyes go slightly out of focus and kind of stared behind the picture, suddenly an image jumped out at you in three-dimensional glory. And it was like magic, especially when you were like 11 or whatever I was at the time. It was like unbelievable. And, he, and but some people could never see the thing. My wife says she could, never, she could never see these. I think it's a measure of IQ or something like that. But <laughs> you, you could never see these things. And so we... Sorry, I should stop offending her. I love you so much, sweet. She's actually smarter than me. You should meet her. That's why it's funny. Um, so we, we talk about seeing things and how seeing things is, is your ability to understand. It's like... Um, there's one theologian who talks about this in terms of your intellectual pursuit. He says sometimes when you're trying to grapple with a problem, you experience cognitive rest. It's something like that. Ah, oh, I get it. And I think that's the moment at which you see something for the first time. And that's another way you can think about how faith works in the Bible. Faith is attached to understanding in scriptures. And for a person, you can have the facts. You can kind of, you get that bit and you get that bit and you get that bit, but you don't quite understand how it all connects and how it connects to you. And suddenly, one day, you say, I see. It's like your eyes have been opened. You perceive things for the first time. And many of you know exactly how that feels because you have experienced it. Maybe not just once, but many times. Well, here's another way you can think about sight. Think about the fact that our different perspectives, our angles of looking at things, are the reasons for the differences between us, the disagreements and differences between us, the reasons why we fall out over all kinds of issues in life. So 
thinking back to the 26th of February, 2015, an event rocked the internet when an image of a stripy blue dress began to be circulated and shared. And the reason why it was so, it was so controversial is because people fell into two very distinct categories. Do you remember this? How some people said, no, the dress is white and gold. And another group said, no, it is black and blue. And it was not only, it was, it was breaking the internet, it was breaking our brains. It was, que- it was causing us to question our perceptions of reality because suddenly we, could, we couldn't trust ourselves. Like, how is it that I look at things this way, they look at things that way, and we can't come to any kind of agreement on this? And then there was a few of us who maintained a minority report, which is the, the dress is blue and gold, which I think is the real answer. So, you know, I... But it underlined for us the fact that the way you see something defines our differences one from another. And certainly this is true when it comes to issues of faith. Another example, just thinking in terms of current affairs, we have this massive fissure, dividing line in our country right now on the whole issue of leave and remain. And to take one example from this, how you perceive the prime minister. Do you look at him as as a tin pot dictator, proroguing parliament, and elevating the power of the executive, of government, in a way that is, that is in, in some way, um, violating our, our, our national uh, institutions and democracy? Or do you rather say, no, 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 he's the true Democrat. Everyone else is trying to trash the results of the referendum and the public will. He is the Democrat. He's the one who wants to maintain the public's desires. And, and you know, how we see or perceive things like this, this explains our differences. And this is never more true than when it comes to the dividing lines of faith and particularly of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see things differently. And the Bible talks about faith very clearly through this lens of how you see what you see in a spiritual sense. And it is distinguishable from your physical capacity to see. Think about this passage in Deuteronomy 29 where Moses spoke to the Israelites and says, You have seen, talking about physical sight, you've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But then he says, listen, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You saw it all you didn't really see it all. The mere fact that your eyes perceive something does not mean that it was matched with a spiritual capacity to see. And that distinction is absolute fundamental, absolutely crucial to understanding your own heart, your own reaction to Christ. Just jumping forward into the New Testament, I'll give you another example of this. Paul's talking about this phenomenon of the fact that two people can look at the same person, at Jesus, and have a very different reaction to him. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about the gospel, the message of Jesus being veiled. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're looking, but they cannot see, he says. And that might be true for you. It may be the case that you're looking, but so far you've been unable to see. 
And then he says about those of us who have come to believe. He says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, in other words, the same God who spoke light into being has shone in our hearts. It's a spiritual capacity to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The difference between one person and another, he says, is whether you see it in a spiritual sense in the heart. Now, I think that theological reality is the reality that's undergirding these encounters that Jesus has in this chapter. And I want to think about some spiritual truths that emerge out of this chapter with all of that understanding in place. Here's the first thing we need to understand. The spiritual blindness, the inability to see, can be rooted in a dangerous form of skepticism. And I'm looking here at the reaction or the interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees when they come to him, and this is shortly after he's performed another extraordinary miracle. And it says that they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. In other words, prove it to us, is what they're asking, they're demanding. And it says he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then a little bit further on, he, he analyzing this situation and teaching his disciples about what has just happened. He turns to them and says in, in verse 15, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I want you to think about this for a second. What is Jesus talking about when he describes the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Elsewhere in the Gospels, if you're answering that question, you'd immediately assume, oh, he's talking about religious hypocrisy. Because most of the encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees, that's his issue with them. The performance of faith that's not matched with a heart reality. And certainly there's an element of that here, but I don't think that's the focus, and I'll tell you why. It's because Herod, this other man who's grouped with them, made no pretense to be a religious man. He was ungodly, and he wore that on the surface. It wasn't even pretending like the Pharisees were to have a heart for God. So the question then is, well, what is Jesus so concerned about in the hearts of people that he says, watch out for this? What is it that characterizes the Pharisees and characterizes Herod? And the clue is in the request that they make for a sign. Because later in, in the end of Luke's gospel, when Jesus is on trial, and he's being shipped back and forth between Pontius Pilate and Herod and back to Pontius Pilate. When he encounters Herod there, Herod's request is that he might see a sign. He says he'd been hoping to see Jesus, that he could have a sign. And this is the connection between these groups. is that they were both coming to Jesus from a posture in which they assumed he was not who he claimed to be and wanted Jesus. It's like arms folded, prove it to us. In other words, it's a deep-set skepticism and a closed-minded approach to Christ, which Jesus is putting his finger on here when he says, beware of this. Be careful when this is in your heart. Now, I want to highlight this. Because I think we live in 
one of the most skeptical ages in the history of the world in our context. And this, is, this has become more and more obvious to me in the work we're doing here in wanting to preach the gospel in a city such as London. I have friends who have planted churches in other parts of the world. Friends who just went a couple of years ago to part of northern Thailand and their most recent baptism service, they baptized 26 people. And we celebrate the grace of God that's on them and the, what's happening. There's an openness of heart where they're working. I have another friend who a few years before us planted in Singapore and his church has exploded in growth. He's baptized dozens, scores and scores of people who've made a profession to follow Jesus. And I think the spiritual atmosphere in which these men are working is quite different from the air we breathe here in London, isn't it? In that we are immersed in the oxygen or the air of skepticism that doesn't even put things on a level playing field, but rather starts from a position, this cannot be true, it cannot be right. And if you were to have any hope of convincing me, you would have to prove it beyond doubt. We're a scientific people living in a scientific age. Now, I'm not talking here about asking questions. I don't think that a skeptic who asks questions is necessarily in a bad place. Questions are absolutely essential in the journey towards faith and also in the maturing of the faith that you now have. And nor am I talking about the experience of doubt. It seems to me that most of the people who have a robust and clear faith, the kind of faith that they are able to articulate with passion and clarity, have experienced moments of doubt that has crystallized the issue of what they believe. So I'm not trying to advocate some kind of naive, swallow it, hook, line, and sinker approach to faith. I think that's complete nonsense. What I am talking about here is a type of skepticism which can affect you if you're not a believer, but also can begin to settle on your heart if you are a believer and, and cause you to be waylaid, which is actually anything but neutral. If anything, it's a determination to not believe. The Bible talks about this quite clearly in various places. I think, though, that this example, this encounter with the Pharisees, is a good example of it. Because look, what they come, they come to Jesus and request is they say, give us a sign. And, of course, Jesus has been performing miracles, so a sign must be different from a miracle. And of course it is. A miracle is a display of power. A sign is a divine attestation, a divine stamp of approval, a, design, a divine seal upon Christ. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to have one of those. He says in Matthew's gospel in answer to them, accept the sign of Jonah, which means Jonah, who was dead for three days in the belly of a fish, was raised from the dead. He's saying, that's the only sign you're going to get. The only proof you're going to get is me raised from the dead. And of course, that does happen. But you see how Jesus reacts to them on this occasion, how it says he sighed. Why does this generation seek a sign, he asks. And the reason he sighs is because because what he's putting his finger on here and what he's seeing in their hearts is is actually an immoral stance, a sinful stance towards God and towards himself in which we tip towards unbelief in a way that is not open-minded but rather deeply closed-minded. And I, I think when I look at the world that we're in that that is, that is the, the, air, the air we breathe, the oxygen that we are raised on and in. 
People cry and scream for proof. We believe in proof, we say. And yet, of course, we believe all kinds of things without proof, just not these things. And the Bible says things like this in Romans 1. It says that men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, he says, are without excuse. Of course, what Paul is saying and what I think is evidently true, if you give it careful thought, is that we live in a world which is inexplicable without the reality of God. His power is evident all around us. And even more so when you look at the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great intellects have approached this with a determination to disprove what they were reading about and have discovered that they have been dashed upon the rock of truth, humbled to the ground, and transformed by the overwhelming reality of this gospel. Friends, I want to remind you of this because there's a reason why Jesus says this to his disciples. If some of you are not Christian, of course, you have to look at your heart and say, look, am I genuinely open to this or not? But most of you are Christian. And the danger is that you allow yourself to slip into this skepticism because everyone else around you is a skeptic. And understand that Jesus is interested in the posture of your heart above all. Are you really looking? He's asking. That's the first thing, how spiritual blindness can be rooted in that kind of skepticism. Here's the second. The second is, is in many ways, it's opposite to this. He, it shows us here in this passage that the capacity to see, the ability to perceive Christ in a way that, that elicits faith in your heart, where you say, I believe he is who he says he is, and I trust him with my whole life. That has to be a gift to you from God. It is a work of God in your life. The reason why I stress this is because, look, as this passage is unfolding, this is exactly the conclusion it drives us to when we, we see this encounter between Jesus and the blind man. The blind man is helpless and hopeless without the aid and the supernatural power of Jesus working upon him. The Bible tells us all the way through that is what it's like to come to perceive the truth about God. God has to move in your heart by a work of his spirit to enable you to see, just as it says here, that he, he could see everything clearly. God does that to hearts. And I want just ask you to ask me, why, why is this a point that we need to understand and grasp? And I think the answer is this, that Unless we understand that this is a gift, you can't get a handle on the reality of grace. Either God does this to you, or you manage to get this yourself. Either by some great intellectual pursuit, or some astuteness that you have, or some spiritual capacity which was unique to you. And the difference between whether it's God or you is the difference between whether you say thank you to a God who worked upon you and enabled you to come to see or whether you basically say thank me. Because look at me, I was smart enough to figure this thing out. 
And the Christian, the Christian, therefore, understands himself to be rather like this blind man in the story. Did you notice how he isn't even able to find Jesus in order to request Christ to heal him? It says, we're told that the people brought the blind man to Christ. And the experience that we have in coming to faith, of course, it may be the case that you were on some kind of spiritual journey or other, but, but in a deeper sense, you are like this blind man, helpless and hopeless, without the work of God working upon you and in you, his initiative, his desire, his will, his grace, his gift. And friends, that's why to live the Christian life is to live every moment in the light of the grace of God undeservedly poured upon you by which you, you say thank you. You say thank you. You opened my eyes. I could not have seen this. It had to be you. I want to bring us to the final point here, which is really to help you understand what happens between that first moment when you come to see and how God wants to work in your life from then on. Because I think what this chapter also teaches us is that growth in the Christian life is about the ability, about growing in the ability to see more clearly and particularly to see Jesus with greater clarity. And the reason why I state that is for a few reasons. First of all, just think about this miracle. When Jesus heals this man, did you notice how it takes place in a really strange way? And I'm not just talking about the spit involved, which we often scratch our heads at. Why is Jesus spitting on everyone in the Gospels? And it's something to do with his anointing. I, I don't really know. But, and I've read the commentators. They don't know either. Anyway, the, the, uh, but it's not that. It's rather that when he, when he prayed for him the first time, he asked him, do you see anything? And do you see how he responded? He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. You've got to ask yourself the question at that point. Why did Jesus only affect a partial miracle? Why did it happen in two steps? Because as far as I can tell, this is the only time this happens in any of the Gospels. And it's not for the reasons that you and I might assume if we were involved in this. Like a lack of faith, that we haven't prayed enough, that we're not godly enough, or we've not got enough spiritual power or whatever. It's for none of those reasons. Because we're talking about Jesus here, okay? This is the guy who can still storms with a word. So this happens intentionally. It happens deliberately. And I think it happens because Jesus wants to teach us a spiritual truth. And I believe that what he's trying to teach us here is about the reality of discipleship. How you can begin to see, but the greatest need of the Christian life is for Christ to clarify your sight to grow in your capacity to see until the point where, as the blind man says, I, he sees that he saw everything clearly. And the proof, I think, of that is the context. It's always the context. What happened just before he heals the blind man was that he had this interaction with his disciples. And when he asks, he, he warns them. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And what do they do? They start talking to each other about how they don't have any bread. We've only got one loaf. What are we going to do? We, what, he's talking about bread. We're all really hungry. They suddenly become aware of how hungry they are, and they start panicking about bread. And Jesus just stands back in kind of a moment of disbelief. Did you notice it? And he starts asking them, actually pummeling them with questions. 
He says, do you still not see? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Can you not see? Can you not hear? Don't you remember? Do you still not understand? It's like that moment in the Back to the Future movies, you know, McFly knocking on his head. Like, seriously, you guys are very, very slow. It's what Jesus is saying in the kindest possible way because he's the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and, and really what I think we're seeing is we're seeing these two stories alongside each other because, okay, you've got the Pharisees totally spiritually blind. Then you've got the disciples who have some kind of rudimentary faith, which has enabled them to see something of who Jesus is, but not enough. Not enough. Jesus, Jesus is pointing to the reality of their, their faith that they can't yet see. Not clearly. Not clearly enough. And I think this is unbelievably important for the reality of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The Bible talks about the realities of discipleship on this side of eternity. And it talks about it in terms of your capacity to see. I think about passages like this. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says um, that now we see in a mirror dimly or in a glass darkly, it says in the King James Version, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. He's saying you've come to see, but what you see about Jesus is still clouded. It's like it's, you're seeing a reflection or a, a slightly distorted version of the real thing. You haven't seen him fully, not yet at least. He says a little bit further on in in 2 Corinthians that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So we're living in this point of tension, you say, where we do see, see, and we see enough that it's begun to change and transform us, but not so much that we can say we we know Christ fully or have been fully changed by his power on us, his, his power at work on us. And all of that is leading in the Gospels or in, in the New Testament towards the trajectory of the final day when you will see Christ. And it says in the book of uh, 1 John, describes what will happen on that day. It says, Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Listen, this, this is how I understand what, if I put all these pieces together for you. The reality of the Christian life is that we all have a different capacity to see. We have seen to different levels of clarity. There's some of us who, as it were, are you know, experiencing short-sightedness, like minus nine vision with great thick lenses where you're squinting and it's like you've got just enough of Jesus to believe, but not so much that you're walking confidently and steadily in growing in Christ. And then there's others who, you know, have, who seem to have 20-20 vision, unhindered sight, as it were. And the, the, the New Testament tells us that, look, we're living somewhere between the ages. The, the end will be when we'll be transformed. But, it, but John says, look, what we will be has not yet appeared. You're living in a moment in your life now where your vision is still obscured. 
you know this because you, you get easily distracted. You find that you don't love Jesus to the degree to which you know he's worthy to be loved. You find that there are temptations in your life which are difficult to overcome or which frustrate you. You find that there are moments where your heart is cold. Moments where you don't think about the Lord at all. And all of these experiences of life are the reality of what John says, that what we will be has not yet appeared. Yes, we live in this moment of frustration. And when we see him, we will be like him. In other words, the vision of his reality is like a, a film negative. Exposed to the light of Christ, you will be instantly changed. And the degree to which you are being changed even in this moment is matched with the degree to which you can see Christ. When your eyes are filled with the vision of who Christ is, in a spiritual sense, temptations fall away. Distractions fall away. Cold-heartedness disappears. Service is elicited from the deepest parts of your will and strength. The, all, the goal of the Christian life then is to see. Now, I want to ask before I close, how then are we called to develop sharper spiritual sight? If that was what this chapter is about, which I think it is, how are we called to grow in this? And I think there are four clues in the very questions that Jesus asks his disciples here. And I want to show you those things. The first is this, that you see better when you understand more deeply. He asked them twice, do you not yet understand? I stress that because it seems to me that many Christians are stunted in their growth because they fail to deepen their understanding of who Christ is. I was reading just a couple of weeks ago, there was a news story of a child in Bristol, around 12, 13 years of age, I believe, who has, from a young age, only eaten basically yellow food, crisps, chips, and I think maybe pasta or something like that, and nothing else except the, the occasional sausage or slice of ham. And unfortunately, this child is going blind. I think it's an almost perfect example of what I'm talking about here. The book of Hebrews laments. says that you should be on solid food, he says to the Hebrews, but you're still suckling, sucking milk. And there's a sense in which the Christian, the person who comes to faith in Christ cannot grow unless there is a steady progression in the understanding of who Christ is. That's maturity. That is growth. That's development from infancy to toddler to teenager to mature adult. I've seen some people grow like that rapidly. Rapidly. I'm not saying that this has to be a great labor, but it must be a desire. Jesus asked his disciples, do you not yet understand? He holds them responsible, I think. Are you pressing in to really understand? There's a verse 
in one of the Psalms, uh, where there's a prayer along these lines. He says, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. I love that line because it's like he's saying, God, you made me the way I am with the brain I have, the capacities I have, the abilities I have. You fashioned me. So, Lord, I cry out to you. Expand my ability to grasp your ways. I think that should be the prayer of every Christian. Give me understanding. To strive for it, to hunger for it, to thirst for it. That you understand Christ more deeply. And isn't that what, exactly what you see in the life of the Apostle Paul? In the book of Philippians, one of his later books. So he's, he's been walking with Jesus for decades at that point, And has a deeper grasp of the gospel than certainly you or I do. If we're going to just use understatement here. And yet, he says in that letter, one thing I do, he says, and he talks about his desire to press on to know Christ. It's like I'm still hungry. I still want to deepen my knowledge of him. Understanding. You see more clearly when you understand more deeply. And it may be the case, the reverse of that is a provocation to you. If you feel that you haven't been growing in your Christian life, I ask you, well, are you seeking to understand more? Here's a second thing. You see better when you walk in repentance. Doesn't Jesus ask them the question, are your hearts hardened? And what he's saying is that there is a moral capacity to vision when you talk about the Christian life. My experience in talking with people over the years is nothing clouds your view of Jesus more quickly than sin does. Nothing is more rapid in stealing your affection from him than sin is. And often we get it wrong in our heads. We, th- we say to ourselves or we complain to a friend or we complain to a pastor, I just feel far from God. I feel like he's not real to me. And then we use that as an excuse to do the things we want to do, not realizing that it was the fact that we were cherishing sin in our hearts which made us unable to see Christ. Here's a third thing. I think you see better when you pay attention. Now, Jesus so provocatively asked them, having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? In other words, you've been gifted all of the spiritual capacities to get this. And yet still, you're not perceiving. Still, you're not hearing. Now think about your physical senses. You can develop any one of them through the mere act of paying attention to them. You think about the smells around you. You may or may not want to do that on this warm evening. But as you do it, you can sharpen your sense of smell through the mere fact that you're paying attention or you're hearing. People who spend years devoting themselves to music, for example, can hear things that you and I cannot hear. And I think that this is a good picture of what it's like in the Christian life. The Christian is a person who, having gained the capacity to see, must now bend all of their will and desire and emotion and energy on paying attention. There's that verse in Hebrews 12, the start of that chapter, where he exhorts us to run the race. And he says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Your eyes are tempted to dart to the left and to the right by all the many seductions in life. 
And what you're looking at is generally the direction in which you run. So the will to look to Jesus is the ability to run towards him. Let me say one last thing. I think you see better when you recollect. What I mean by that is Jesus asked him the question, do you not remember? And this is crucial because one of the most neglected spiritual disciplines in the Christian life is the discipline of recollection, the discipline of remembering. You'll find this as a spiritual discipline all the way through the book of Psalms, which is charting the spiritual life of the believer. Jesus asked him, do you not remember? Now, why is memory, the ability to remember, the ability to recall, so absolutely crucial in determining the Christian's heart for Christ? And I'll tell you why. It's because you go through seasons in life where it feels like the darkness falls upon you. It can be moments of suffering. It can be moments of isolation. It can be moments of temptation. Sometimes it's circumstances, sometimes it's stuff that's happened in your heart. But recollecting is recalling to mind what you saw in the daylight when you're in the dark. And the Christian is a person who understands the importance of bringing to mind the realities that you knew in the light in order that you can persevere in the dark. Do you not remember, he asked them. These disciples had seen enough of the glory of Jesus not to fall into doubt anymore. And yet they were doubting. They'd seen enough of his power not to be anxious, and yet there they were anxious. And friend, I want to encourage you. It may be the case that you feel things are not right with you right now. But do you remember? Do you remember what you knew in the daytime? Do you remember why you knew it? What did God do in your heart? What has he done in your life? How have you seen Christ? We're going to respond to the Lord in prayer in a way that's very personal. Some of you have never seen the things I'm talking about. And you have a hunch that there's more to this than you've been able to see so far. And I want to encourage you, just call out to the Lord. Say, Lord, open my eyes. If this is real, show me. Others of you are aware that your eyes have been drawn aside. That your vision is blurry. That it's like you see trees walking. You've seen something of Jesus, but you want more. As we take the bread and we take the wine, thank you, Lord, that he's given us these, these visible, experiential elements to remind us of the realities of the cross. But we're asking for the Holy Spirit to move upon us to bring about a spiritual change. to bring about love you look at what you love don't you pay attention to what we love 
This question of what comes first? Do we look so that we will love? Or do we love which causes us to look? To which the answer is yes. It's both, isn't it? As you look at Jesus, his, his reality warms you. And friend, it may be the case that you feel like you can't come to him right now because of the things you're carrying. The doubt or the guilt, the fear. Lay it down. He loves you. I want to hand out the bread and the wine and we're just going to sit in a state of kind of reflection. Do you want to love the Lord more? Let's just ask that this Holy Spirit helps us to know him more deeply. Father, it was your idea to give Jesus to us. It was your idea to send your spirit upon us. You've given us sight. Now help us to see